So hello and welcome to Cyberdelia. I'm Dave. I'm Mo. And uh, first, uh, before we get into our topic, uh, a bit of a sad note, but we we want to pay tribute um, to MF Doom, who passed away recently. And uh, we're, we're both pretty, pretty sad about that. And um, I mean, we, we were planning on switching up the music, but yeah, it, it feels like our, our little send off. Thank you, MF Doom, for everything you've done for us. So what are we talking to about today, Mo? David, you have been telling me for quite some time now about this thing called, well, I'm not even sure how to say it. So I'm going to try two different pronunciations and, mm-hmm. and then we're going to maybe start from there. It's either SQL Lite or SQL Lite. So it is pronounced <laughs> SQL Lite. And I only just found that out this morning when I was um, watching a video from the, the founder of the project, the uh, initial author. Um, want to say Richard Hip, And so I've been calling it SQLite forever, um, basically, since I first heard about it. So uh, apologies in advance. We are probably going to, to fall into old patterns a lot. But but we really wanted to talk about uh, SQLite today um, because basically out of the blue, I said, Mo, we got to talk about this because have you ever noticed sometimes you're in a situation where you realize that this thing that you know, it was kind of good and it, it was just growing. All of a sudden it was like, this is everywhere. Yes. And this is actually a really important thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's in everything. It's in everything. I think the first time, I remember the first time I came across uh, SQL Lite and we chose not to use it. And I wish we had chosen to use it. It would. It would I think it would have simplified so many things. It was for, we were building this, windows smart client so it was like a windows form application that had some internet connectivity except it was meant to work in environments that didn't have network connectivity so they um, it was for auditors for auditors to be able to collect their uh, observations and photos and etc etc and so we needed to persist some data during that collection on this like windows laptopy device and we ended up choosing XML. Like we built our own XML proprietary standardized, like not standard, but non-standard format for storing all this data. And before we choose XML, we were looking around, like we had a lot of experience with relational databases, but having like a relational database management system that's uh, connect like offline that we could like synchronize, et cetera. And we came across SQL Lite but we were unsure. This was like 2007, I want to say. So we were unsure about whether or not this was going to work across devices, across uh, the different scenarios that we were going to need in the future. And boy, were we wrong. Boy, were we wrong. I I first saw SQLite um, probably around the same time. Um, I, I was doing some projects in university, some data source stuff, and I was using MySQL because it, it was what I knew. Did you say MySQL? Or is it MySQL? Oh, I no, think it is I get actually MySQL. I don't know. I oh. say MySQL all the time. So wherever we say SQL today, I guess you could interchange that with your preference. SQL, SQL. I believe if you go back to the canonical source, the purist will say SQL. I could be wrong on that. but um, I, So apologies in advance. SQL, in many respects, is still a fairly new thing. Um, because I, I think it was Ted Codd released the SQL paper back in like 1980. And ANSI, ANSI approved it in 86, I want to say. Gosh, David, I just took this course last year and I've already forgotten this. How do you remember <laughs> this stuff? Uh, sounds, uh, sounds about right. Sounds yeah. Right. And and so SQL Lite, in that sense, it's kind of a newcomer to um, to the relational database scene. but What's made it interesting, and you know, I can't blame our decision making in you know 2007 and a little earlier than that because uh, the first commit for SQLite came out in 2000, and this is where I I realized, oh my gosh, this actually is a really important thing. Um, not just because it's in trillions of things, which we'll get into, but seeing that they had a a goal slash guarantee of uh, backwards compatibility to the year 2050. Now. 
a lot of businesses and a lot of projects will say, oh, you know, we want to last forever. And that's a it's a great thing to aspire thing. It's quite another to actually hold to it. And as I've been dealing with, I've got breaking syntax changes in Terraform, Ruby, like all these projects that they can't keep things straight for longer than a few years. SQLite, basically, if you created an SQLite database in 2004, it should still work. Unbelievable. And and they've added so much to it. Like, that is just fantastic. And I guess, I guess we should talk about what SQLite is. Like, how is it different from uh, oh, MySQL, yeah. for example? SQLite, um, for those who never used it, it's it's a program. It's a library. It's a single file. The idea is normally in a uh, like a web server relationship, something like that. You have your application and then your database is running in a different process. Yeah, it could be on the same uh, you know, server, same host. It could also be RDS instance in AWS or whatever. Like the idea is you have some sort of separation. SQLite is you have this file and you connect to it as a file. And um, so it's all within the same process, but multiple processes can actually open this file and you you still get all the same atomicity guarantees. So, you know, they're not going to clobber each other, but the assets, it's asset yeah. compliant, right? Okay. It's so you got, compliant. it's atomic, consistent, atompotent, and durable. I think those are the, those are like the four qualities of an asset compliant, uh, a database. And so the database itself is represented in a single file yeah. is what you're telling me. Okay. And, and so that single file, the file format, I mean, if anyone who's ever had the the pleasure of trying to open like a file and then the host program update, so it's like, oh, now you have Office. Well, I guess that's probably not a good example anymore with Office 365. But um, back in the old days, you know, from different Office versions, you'd have problems actually opening your documents. And to have a file format stand the test of time and and do really complicated stuff, that's gone from just a interesting curiosity that it's you know so well tested and all that to they've actually pulled it off uh, to the point where the library of congress and I, I did this is another fact i didn't know until yesterday the library of congress they have uh suggested uh sqlite as a archival file format so the only other three formats that they have encouraged are xml json and i want to say comma separated value uh, files CSV. Yeah. Wow. And for SQLite to to land in that means they've passed some pretty critical thresholds. Um, yeah. And I mean, as as someone my like I I live the gospel of plain text, and now that I've done a lot of reading into this, I feel like a lot of my stuff. Boy, I bet I could simplify this a lot if I moved to an SQLite um, database. Mm-hmm. I want to clarify one thing. I said in acid, I I believe I said idempotent, and I think I meant isolation. I can't remember because you need like isolation within uh, your read-write uh, transactions, and it, it does support transactions, which is like in itself kind of amazing for like a single file format to be shared across processes and, and have isolation that you can transact in a way that you can commit or roll back without affecting other other connections. And then, as you mentioned, like the format of the file, like to be able, okay, so you said 2000, I think it was like August 2000, that was the first commit. So I have no idea when the first like version of the file format was sort of finalized, but to be future thinking or develop a file format that can, you know, eventually add things like full text support, uh, to add things like the, the schema-less NoSQL type style of uh, columns, etc. To do that on top of the same file format is kind of incredible. Like it's 32 I, bit, it's 64 bit, it's little Indian, it can be big okay. Indian. I mean, that is just oh, if that's I can so take bad. a file from my you know Intel PC, which I think is little Indian, 32 bit. I can create this file, uh, save it, and then I can send it to you across the wire. You might be running M1 now, an ARM chip with I don't know if it's big Indian or little Indian, and you will still be able to operate on that same file. Yeah. Without yeah, like, any like additional complexity transformation on your end, the client libraries, uh, 
handle that. Mm-hmm. Um, is that not amazing? Like, because like we take that for granted with a text file for the most part, right? So we talk about XML or CSV and uh, or JSON as a, but to have like a file format which you can't really natively open in your text editor that has that same those same properties, but with the ability to do things like run structured queries, <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Yeah. And I mean, it's all in the public domain too. I mean, so you'd think right. something something this incredible, oh gosh, they'd be charging an arm. We're like, no, it's free. It's public yeah. domain. And wow. not only is it public domain, if you uh, check the license, let me pull it up here real quick. What is the license? The, the license is, the author disclaims copyright to the source code. In place of a legal notice, here is a blessing. May you do good and not evil. May you find forgiveness for yourself and forgive others. May you share freely, never taking more than you give. Like, that is oh some... Goodness. Oh, how, how can you not find that charming? I, I really like that. I, I mean, to have something this well-built, this foundational, and they just give it away? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, really incredible. So when they gave it away, like, who used it and why? Uh, and I may have this wrong, uh, so uh, take with a grain of salt. But according to Wikipedia, the... Uh, founder wrote it for General Dynamics at the time, back in 2000. And initially it was going to be a um, a Tickle language extension. <laughs> and it just sort of escaped into the wild. And what's made it so popular is, I mean, really, it's the testing around it. Like, this thing is basically bulletproof. They have four different test harnesses around it. I mean, it's, code coverage is, I think, pretty high, too. If, if uh, it, It's complete. If I, OK, yes, that's if what I call correctly. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah. For something that's 140,000 lines of code, I guess, was last I read to have it that well documented, tested, like there's just not a whole lot of surprises there. I mean, there's some quirks, um, but I mean, nothing too terribly serious. It really makes you wonder what other projects could actually just be done by, you know, a handful of people. And just with the idea of this is a 50-year project and we end up with something so incredible as SQLite. Yeah, it, it's kind of amazing to me that this thing can even exist and that it isn't owned by, like, a large company. It isn't owned by a single vendor and that uh, this is found on devices that you would say would be like competing with one another on browsers that you would say would be competing on with one another. it's like it's not owned by uh i don't a, a single corporation it, it's like the idea of maybe a single person and back in 2000 uh who saw an opportunity with you know wherever they were working at the time if it was general dynamics to turn that into what it is today is incredible and and the fact that i can use it without having to pay any money or to subscribe to any sort of contract or anything like that and today i can go create an embedded database and ship it with my product or my open source tool and distribute that and share that just like i can with a text file if we're we were to collaborate on on some code is is incredible Yeah, the small group of developers, um, I, I guess there's sort of a, a minor consulting thing that they do. And I don't mean I don't mean minor in a pejorative sense. I just mean small. And they've managed to do all of that. And it continues um, to be that uh, impressive. And uh, some of the philosophical things that have come out of it are really fascinating. So, you know, I, I've taken for granted as as uh, someone who's been in the open source world for so long you know there's the argument of the cathedral versus the bazaar and it was always well there's no point in building a cathedral because that's so big a task it's so hard just don't do it you use all these other parts and the sqlite folks say well no you you actually can build cathedrals um as long as well defined and they they're kind of proof of it and i mean yes in one sense it's it's bizarre model. And so far as you can just take the SQLite source, which 
I mean, I want to get into the SQLite source, and I, I know I'm jumping yeah, all over the place. I, I do too, uh, but because we're going to talk about the single file distribution, I think. Uh, yeah, let's let's talk about the single file distribution. That is that is really <laughs> smart. Yeah. So you can get SQLite as a bunch of files, or what they also provide is uh, the amalgamation file. So you can just include SQLite.c into your project, and there you go. You now have access to SQLite. Um, and, and it's so easy to integrate that a lot of major languages like Tickle and Python, I believe Ruby has it as well. Yeah, there's definitely, uh, and, and I think the other interesting part is like this works across uh, Windows, which is supported nicely, uh, Mac OS and Linux. So when you generate that, I, I believe it's generated, you generate the uh, single header file, single C file, and you can distribute it with your package for whatever uh, architecture you're looking, which makes it, because they, they, they put the time in to think about that to make it easy to distribute, I think it made it easy to distribute. <laughs> That's why we have so many bindings for it. Yeah, I would love to see more projects take that idea of we should actually make this very easy to just add into your existing project because I think of so many different libraries where to, to pull it in, you, you basically have to change the world uh, yeah. in order to get that integration. And SQLite, it's easy. I, I can see why it is as popular as it is. Mm -hmm. I, and, I remember trying to create like a Ruby binding for RocksDB. I just wanted to go through the process of seeing like, how do I create a, a Ruby binding using FFI, et cetera. And I, if I recall correctly, RocksDB was like a C++ project, but there wasn't an easy way that I could actually include a couple of header files and C files and distribute that as a single source uh, Ruby binding gem. And, and because of that, I, I eventually moved on, uh, you know, to, to, to SQLite. Uh, it offered what I needed. Before we stray too far from the, uh, the idea of you can have your cathedral, one thing they uh, the SQLite folks have also done, and this this blew me away as soon as I found this access. I, I initially wanted to uh, check out the source code because I was slowly coming to realization SQLite was you know incredible. Um, and I was like, oh okay, okay, well they've got a or a Git mirror, and but they're actually hosted on a source control um, program that they wrote that is based off of SQLite. Like it, it feeds, it feeds itself. It runs itself. Self-hosting. <laughs> like, <laughs> could you back up just a second there? You said that the source code for SQLite is hosted in a version control system that's built on top of SQLite. That is correct. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, let's let's dive in. What is this thing? So uh, this this thing is called Fossil, and it's can be thought a bit of like Git. But it's much simpler, and it's self-hosting. And when I say self-hosting, I mean you can have your fossil web server for your project. So you know, when you think of a Git repository. Well, the Git repository holds your code, and and that's it. So fossil, it doesn't just hold your code; it also holds a bug tracker. It also holds a chat room um, and like a bulletin board, like a static site. When I say it hosts itself, I, I mean it. It actually hosts itself, um, and it's really easy to, for them to communicate with each other. I'm I'm, I'm still learning it. I, I want to move uh, a bunch of my projects to this because it's just that is a decentralized version control system, is it not? Yeah. Like you don't have a central authority to push all your your commits to your. If you have everything you need on your node and you can distribute that amongst your peers. To me, that sounds like an actual distributed version control system. Now, we have that same ability with Git, but I think in uh, actual practice, a lot of us like host our Git repositories on, on centralized uh, systems. Mm -hmm. And so we can also run the equivalent of like a Git web UI, but it I don't think it includes an issue tracker or some of the other <laughs> things yeah. that you just described there. I mean, don't get me wrong, like there, there's definitely nice creature comforts in, you know, GitLab and GitHub, but yep. not all projects actually need that. Um, yeah. if, right. if you're just, I, I look at the Raspberry Pi on my desk, and if I just wanted to host, you know, a few small little repositories that they're just for me, they're not for everyone else, but but I still want to have a bug tracker because my memory's not so hot. And, uh, yeah. you know, all, all these little things, 
why can't I just have that? And why do why do I need to spend you know hours setting this up when it could just be you know built right in on uh, your own machine? Yeah, and yeah. no need to put it on a uh, host it on a server elsewhere. And I suppose like if you start just on your own machine with this project idea before you're even ready to publish it, at some point you have I guess if it's a SQLite database, you could just share the SQLite database uh, with someone else, and now they've got uh, a clone of yep. not just the source, but the issue tracker, the uh, all the, the other documents, the design like documents, the entire history, uh, not just the code, the entire history of the project, right? Because if we think about projects, there's a lot of artifacts that are important that are outside of the code. Oh yeah, are hosted I... in wikis. How many SourceForge websites have you seen where it's like, hi, this, this is everything you need to know about this project. By the way, we don't actually host the code on SourceForge anymore. Here is our Git clone. And so it's like it's distributed all over the place. Um, Here's the canonical copy of this thing. Yeah. So I think that's really powerful. And I think yeah, I think Git's going to have to come up with a better response to that um as opposed to just well you know you could have multiple git repositories so like most people don't know that the um the wiki that comes with a github project is actually just uh another git repository uh so you you can clone that wiki which is nice uh i believe it uses Gollum um as the rendering engine but i mean a fossil they they take the same thing except it's it's a singular it's all tied together it's all one all one database uh so th that is just really cool i i'm kind of beside myself I, I don't usually get excited by uh by projects these days and i mean sqlite i'm actually finding this pretty exciting stuff and uh, I, I mean i i know that sounds silly but when you've been around since the project started it can just grow and you, you, you don't notice it. Uh, and it's just been there that whole time, getting better and better and holding to that guarantee of like, yeah, till 2050. Yeah. I, I know like just one of the things I like to do when I get onto a project, especially if it's been around for a while, is like I like going to the first commit. I like just reading the message. I like to try to understand what it was like to be there at that time to get a sense of like who was involved what were they thinking because i'm always interested of like how things start mm -hmm. and um so the commit is like one artifact but if i could also see here's the discussions that were happening at that time and try to take myself back there and time travel through the discussions the wiki entries the issues that were coming up the decisions that were being made without having to even like leave the terminal for the most part or leave my machine um i think that's sort of a more complete uh i guess fossilized artifact of <laughs> what was happening at that time mm -hmm. and being able to distribute that in one file is a nice way especially with what you were saying earlier of it being like one of the file formats that's uh, recommended for archival uh, this is a great way to create an archive of projects, full projects, the communications, the design documents, all the sort of surrounding things that we kind of take for granted in order to be able to work on a project. Uh, but you don't have to take on that overhead right off the bat. You can just start with, I've got Fossil, and I can start with just the version control capabilities specifically for my source. But if I need to add uh, issue tracking or bug tracking, it's there for me, and it lives in the same place. I like this idea a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so one one of the things that uh, they do mention is, is SQLite. You have this file. It's great if you want to just have your server reading off of it. But like, what happens if your hardware fails, and you know, or or the hard drive dies? Now, yes, you can take. Uh, you know, regular backups of that file, but are you so going to tell me there's like a replication factor or something built in? With... Well, so there's there's a uh, a new project called Lightstream, and what this does is it's it regularly snapshots um, and puts <laughs> it on things like S3. So it's that distributing way, it for you. <laughs> yeah, it's like okay, well, we'll take care uh, uh, and have this as as uh, backed up as possible, so that. In the server MySQL, uh, you know, paradigm where it's on its own host, 
you you could still potentially end up in a situation where you could lose some rights. Um, like it it does happen. Um, and to have something where you're basically still punching at that weight of like, look, we have just about everything, and you could probably put in something in the application and to make sure that you can that you're not losing any rights. Yeah, that is just so amazing. So and this is like forwarding the bin logs from MySQL to like a, a replica, except that it's the SQLite database file. Uh, I don't know if it's unpacked into multiple files or not, but like replicated into other places. So you have snapshots of what's happening in that project. Yeah. It doesn't solve the problem if you know you have multiple servers that need to access this SQLite. Uh, file but it's not it's not aimed for that and Mm -hmm. i think that's where i kind of want to get into a little bit of a discussion of mo do you feel that in some sense we we over engineer and under engineer at the same time do i feel in some sense that we over engineer and yeah i mean like depending on the problem i'd say uh, it's really easy to over engineer (laughs) uis these days uh you know like starting with toolkits and frameworks that require a lot of complexity up front. And then we sort of take things for granted, like, okay, what database server are we going to use? Let's just use one of these three. Uh, and we don't really spend much time in, in that choice. So I'd say, yeah, it's absolutely possible. I'm, I'm probably have some blind spots to that as well, just because I'm old and grizzly and <laughs> I've got the baggage of experience. So I would say, yeah, absolutely possible. Where I'm thinking about this is, you know, I, I've read a few a few blog posts of like, oh, this blog's running on Kubernetes. And uh, I mean, I'm, <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, this, I'm just remembering uh, that whole movement that when everyone realized, like, yeah, everyone realized, oh, gosh, we can we can actually use uh, static websites as opposed to having, you know, yeah. a, a MySQL backend and oh, well, we'll need a cache. and. Oh, yeah. if it's if it's just HTML that's changed once a month, you don't actually need all of that. Um, oh my goodness! Yeah, you know when I made that transition from a dynamically generated blog uh, that had a web server process, I had a database server process to just, you know what, this content doesn't really change. Let me just statically generate this and push this out to uh, a file server and just distribute it in, with the CDN. Like that was a, an amazing moment when I realized I didn't have to really run servers. Um, and I could still get the same impact in many cases better because uh, I had less need to generate pages on the fly, which meant that HTML is already generated, just serve it right out, right? Yep. Opportunity for failure, much lower. The opportunity for failure is lower and the uh, the ability to recover from failure is very fast. It's just, oh, well, I'll just SCP it again. Done. <laughs> and I mean, you can even have... You can even have a process where it's like, well, you know, I've got a cron job that runs every minute and SCPs or like R syncs the files. Yep. There. Yep, so like just... if the server dies, well, in a minute it will be back. Or, you know, you can even do it even faster than that. Yep. And so like thinking of mean time to repair being, you know, an essential part of projects, I'm thinking of how many projects I've done, personal and at work, where it ends up being really over-engineered and so far as we have a whole lot of moving pieces but by virtue of having so many moving pieces it actually falls apart more often than had it been a simple case of like oh well it's a sinatra app with a mysql backend (laughs) (laughs) like that's it um yeah because uh... there's a lot of sites that actually sort of meet that criteria and i'm not suggesting that Okay, you you put all customer data into a single SQLite database, and that's that's enough. But there's definitely going to be use cases where, I mean, there's the Yagni, you ain't gonna need it. And now that Go has the ability to embed like files into uh, the program itself, and you've got SQLite, it's like, gosh, I don't need all this extra baggage that used to come with all this stuff. I can just have two files. And that's enough for like a dynamic website. I I had no idea that this was something new to to go that you could. So you're talking about like embedding resources oh, into yeah. like a single compiled Go binary. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll we'll put the link in the show notes. Um, because it, I mean, it just sort of uh <laughs> makes sense. It, change logs and um, yeah. So before I would just sort of you know you do a string literal massive thing, but like that's kind of ugly for when you're working with like a lot of templates or something like that. So yeah. don't just put it all into one executable. So when I'm put in that situation where there is a single executable and a single database file mm-hmm. and it's running on the same instance the amount of potential for failure is going to be a lot lower than well i've got uh, my sql server i've got uh, network. <laughs> I, yeah like remove Let's just the remove network, the network. <laughs> and it becomes so much easier um yeah and and you can you can come up with very very intuitive, very straightforward mechanisms to handle failure scenarios that just have something that, you know, it streams the, uh, it reads the uh, web server logs. And if there's too many, you know, 500s or any, it's like, oh, just knock everything over and make, put it all fresh again. You know, the idea of building smaller cathedrals uh, as opposed to Let's just pick a bunch of unreliable parts, and sometimes you find a new unreliable part that's slightly better than the last unreliable part. I, Do you think that that's possible with just clearly defined problems, or or are we taking problems? This is sort of like a general question. Are we taking problems and assuming that the inevitable change is going to happen, and so we need to prepare for that change and over provision? In many cases, like over provision on where we put our data, over provision on how we uh, choose our delivery of this data, whether it's web UI or, I mean, I'm quite happy with just text user interfaces and <laughs> having things on my machine. I, you know, if I could limit the number of things that have to fly across a network for my own personal scripts, that's my preference. But when it comes to making those choices for like a team-based project. I think that I'm probably falling closer to choosing the bazaar or favoring the bazaar, but you're kind of questioning that for me right now. And I'm wondering, like, can you think of some examples where you think like the cathedral approach may have yielded less overhead up front and just as much value down the road? One thought I had, I, I mean, I'm, I'm using this strictly as an example. I don't think this would be a, a, a thing we should do, but there's so many different formats that, again, hold data in a Unix file system. So the etc password file, where it's delimited by um, semicolons, or is it colons? I think it's colons, yeah. <laughs> it's colons. <laughs> Colon delimited, uh, and then you've got your uh, user ID, group ID, <laughs> login, and shell, I think. Oh, yeah. And then also Etsy, like the whether it's the password digest right on that line or the something there's a marker that says whether to go look in Etsy shadow but yeah yeah so like that's a very great example actually <laughs> like okay so we need to store like login information like what shell do we launch when this particular user logs in and how do we authenticate them so let's just create a single file we'll use colons as like the delimiter it'll have their user id we're not going to check for uniqueness etc as you know we'll assume you know how to structure that file properly and that one file gets you a lot. It gets yeah. you entry into a system. Um, like, yeah. And so I, you've also got all the tooling that goes around this stuff. So uh, Editor, for the most yeah. part. Yeah. And then, um, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. I, it's, so, yeah, you, you've got um, things that you have to parse that. And Get I mean, that, ends, that's a I much think, smaller yeah. example. But I mean, here's a larger example. So how many programs output to um, output to log files? And we have all we have this whole massive structure to deal with logs. Yeah. And so, for example, the logs for a web server. So say Apache or Nginx. Well, that's a fairly straightforward log file. Why are we doing that? Uh, those access logs in a format that requires so many different ways to parse it. And like, I'm, I'm sure you've gone, okay, how many 200s have we had in the past hour? What, <laughs> yes. Why, why are we uh, writing? Like a structured log format this? for yeah. that, that sort of works across uh, I, your choice in web server 
And because it's a single file, like you could still do the log rotation where it's okay. Well, we've we want to rotate the log, so you know you send SigHub or whatever, and it just creates a new SQLite database and starts putting the logs into that. And uh, it would be so much easier to tie all those together in like a relational database. I, I just don't I don't know why we don't do that. And you think of, oh, gosh, we changed the file logging format and now we've broken everyone's parsers. Uh, right. Well, if, if all you were doing was adding a column, well, that's not going to cause any problems for anyone, except for like the worst written stuff, I suppose. Stop picking up. Sorry. <laughs> <I'm, just kidding. laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. But yeah, there, there's lots of stuff where the data itself is uniform. Mm-hmm. And yet we find ourselves creating new formats every mm-hmm. time and yeah i mean you could do this in xml or json or whatever but if we if you're already planning on manipulating that anyway in order to like get a report of okay what what's the most popular page in the past 24 hours well you could write some really gnarly stuff some scripts to do that or you could just create a sql query mm. I, I mean i'm, I'm finding myself looking through my file systems uh, and just seeing a lot of stuff that actually could be converted. And I I don't want to be one of those people where it's, I, I have a hammer and everything is a nail, but. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of Splunk versus like Cabana dashboards. Each time I go to one of those, I think Splunk's a little more intuitive, but uh, it's still a new like intermediate language. I have to remember to, to basically convey my intention, which mm-hmm. I have sort of mastered when I think about SQL, right? Like for the most part, like when I'm trying to f- query data in terms of relations, like I can I can write up SQL pretty off the top of my head. But when I go to like Cabana UI or if I go to Splunk UI, I have to kind of remember how to translate what I want to do into the query language that matches that particular user interface. And I'd love to be able to have a standardized format maybe this exists that leverages my existing knowledge or just grow up and learn them like how many query languages have have we both learned in our lives mo (laughs) and how many Uh, how many could could have just been sql at the end of the day (laughs) you know what like i I was talking about that example where we churned out uh, xml files as the data storage one of the other things we looked at was a project called db4o database for objects so it's like an object database where you could marshal your objects and memory back and forth into a file format without having to deal with this sort of uh, paradigm mismatch of like object-oriented programming and relational data, which we've sort of gotten used to with ORM. The idea was you could you know take your objects and memory and just shove them in the file, and rehydrate them, right? And all the concerns of little endian, big endian, et cetera, and changes in your structure of your classes, et cetera, would magically be taken care of and it came with its own query language it was called query by example if i remember where you would uh, provide an instance of an object that looked like the object types you're looking for um yes it's like i'm thinking about that i'm thinking about excel oh my goodness excel and pivot tables and like excel in itself is extremely powerful yet extremely confusing for me and then when you start to include like programming languages or embedded scripting inside those Excel sheets, it becomes incredibly hard to maintain because it's hard to see what's happening, what, who's changing what. You're distributing these Excel files where they're, um, you know, before the XLSX standard, it was like a binary format. So even with the XLSX, I don't know if you can really diff these things. So, so many, I guess there's so many different like types of query languages. Some of them... I would say even like a shell pipeline is still one of my favorite query languages, right? So if I wanted to find all the 200s, I still like just using awk and grep and sort uh, to find that information. And those tools, I think like when you learn those tools, you learn a, a way to query your system, right? If they're emitting log files for the most part or something that you can stream, um, it, it makes you quite proficient when you jump from one system to another. And so as we move some of these things to like proprietary query languages, like, and I'm, I'm calling like the Cabana UI and Splunk UI like proprietary, because if I learn that query language, there might be some aspects that will 
transition from that to another tool. Uh, but I think there's very few. It's more about like learning how to structure the data such that I can get the information that I need and less time on the, the details of the query language. I guess that's why I'm like less excited about learning it because I see like, oh, this is like going to expire soon. <laughs> like I can see the expiration date on that and it's maybe not next year or two years, but it's likely not going to be as useful to me in five years or 10 years. So I'm a little bit more cavalier about the time that I spend on that. Um, but if there was like a structured query language that I could use that provides me with data from multiple sources like log files, you know, process information, uh, devices on my machine, uh, why not spend that time? Because that knowledge is transferable. Yeah. I, there's, <laughs> Old there's man just... yells at cloud. <laughs> I can hear Johnny now. <laughs> <laughs> I will point out there there are tools like uh, OS Query, which leverages uh, SQLite as, as a means of querying your operating system for values in a way that's more or less system agnostic. And don't get me wrong, that that's nice. But you you sort of ask yourself, wait, why why are we building a tool just to glom on top? Why aren't we just incorporating the database right into the heart of the, the operating system? And um, I, I think they were doing something like that for Windows 10. I don't know how, but uh, SQLite, they, they have a list of, here are some of our users. Uh, interestingly enough, they point to uh, the Flame malware uh, on their site. It's like, here, Flame used our, uh, our database as well. Um, I guess it's an embedded database. It's a great yeah. usage of it. Um, yeah, it, it was a very advocated. popular one, yeah. I guess, in that sense. Um Works across devices. You don't have to worry about, as we mentioned, those things, endianness, etc. Yeah, but yeah, how much, how much of our problems actually would sort of fit into something like this? And we just, we we've got the burden of I I spent that year learning how to use Unix systems correctly, and of course that involves a password file which is colon delimited, and of course that includes. I'm thinking of all the various file formats that are involved. So GDBM, yeah, uh, uh, I think that's what RPM database is. The mm -hmm. yeah, and so GDBM, if I remember, is like the GNU Berkeley database something. But the Berkeley database standard was like the thing I think most Unix systems had for storing yeah. key value stores. I think I can't I remember. I believe it's in the POSIX um, specifications. Okay. I, I forget to what extent but I, it rings a bell <laughs> ini and toml and yeah yaml and json there's so many different ways to structure and i mean even csv yeah. um this sort of reminds me of one thing i i read recently about sqlite is being able to import and export in different formats you can actually take a csv file and import that into uh, a table in SQLite, which is kind of interesting because now all of a sudden you can turn that CSV file into something that you can run SQL queries against with fairly little effort. And then be, I believe you export it back out to CSV in case you need to do any modifications to that, which is incredible. So I haven't actually done this, but I'm, you know, assuming I can build a, some somewhat of a shell pipeline where I take some CSV data, uh, pipe it into SQLite's uh, command line interface, do the queries or massages or mutations that I need to do and then export it back out into a nice little pipeline, which to me is excellent. Uh, those are skills that I already have. Those are skills that I'd like to get better at. And those are skills that I think that'll transfer. Um, so yay, yay, SQLite, SQLite. Yep. We didn't really S talk about the command line interface actually, now that I mention it. No, it's got one. It's good. Yeah, yeah. It's you just you run. I forget what the I think it's SQLite three or uh, that's yep. the name of the program, and you just give it the path to the file, and then you're in a you're in a REPL. You can run your queries. You can do different like maintenance tasks on the database. Um, it's fantastic. If you've never used SQLite, and if you're listening to this podcast, I guarantee you 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 are using it because it's in iTunes. It's in your phone. It, it is everywhere. You're using it. You may not be aware of it. Check it out at sqlite.org. We'll have the link in the show notes. It's fascinating. I'm not often beside myself, just mouth open, but I, th they've done 
I, I don't want to say the impossible, but they've they've made me believe that you can build small cathedrals. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is that is something now I, I want to aspire to. I, I want to build a project where it's like, oh, I'll support this until 2060. Um, well, I, I, I don't know what that would be. But... <laughs> like Fossil for Git, you know, I want to be able to do exactly what you're describing with Fossil, but on my Git database, on my Git repository. I don't know if that's uh, I'm not ready to give up Git yet. David, not ready. I love these ideas that you talked about in Fossil, but I'm just, I'm not ready. Well, like, why couldn't we extend Git more? I, yeah, we can always change. We can always, we can always do better. Um, and yeah. I, I imagine that's that could extend to Git as well. But at least for today, Fossil is uh, well in the lead of the self-contained has everything category. I'll give it a try. Yeah. So I, I guess we could say that this episode is uh, brought to you by SQL Lite. We endorse it pretty mm-hmm. fully. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anything else this episode's brought to you by? Yeah, I had some fun stuff, but I can't remember what it is now because I didn't write it down. Um, well, I guess, I mean, a shout out to Fossil. And and I'm, what was the author's name for SQL Lite? Was it Dr. Richard Hip? Gosh. Dr. Richard Hip. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Richard Hip, for giving me a tool to learn relational databases. Oh, uh, one more thing as I'd like to say, uh, this episode is brought to you by Mime Magic. Oh, so t- tell me why Mime Magic is uh, all of a sudden at the top of your mind, Mo. Well, I think it's on the top of a lot of people uh, who are in the Rails ecosystem, at least at the top of their mind. The reason being, so Mime Magic is a gem that is used to, I don't know exactly what its input and output is, but it's used to determine the MIME type for different files. And it was released with an MIT license, right? So MIT allows redistribution. You don't have to pay royalties or anything like that. It doesn't require you to, it's a pretty free and open license. You don't have to open source your software if you're gonna redistribute it. But uh, the MIME Magic uh, gem author, took a file from freedesktop.org. This file includes like mappings. I think it was like an XML file, if I recall correctly. And this XML file included a bunch of mappings, like so you can see what the magic uh, bytes are, et cetera, for specific file formats. So it's like a pretty comprehensive list of different file formats. And in the distribution of the gem, I don't remember if the file was distributed or if the file was used to build uh, a, a table of data in the in the gem itself. But that file had an SPDX identifier that was GPL version 2. And so because that file was resident in the source code, and I believe also included as part of the distribution and used for generating tables, it then uh, violated the actual obligations associated with uh, GPL, which is that, well, you have to keep the license. Anything that includes GPL v2 code now is encumbered by the GPL v2 obligations, which includes things like keeping the license intact, as well as uh, sharing a copy of the source code for your software. So if you were a uh, working on a project where your source code was kept private and it had included this gem, which then included a version of uh, a file that was encumbered by the GPL v2 license, your software was also under uh, these same obligations without your knowledge. So when that knowledge was made aware to the author the author took a couple of quick actions i say they were probably drastic and and i don't mean to say this in judgment because it's you know when you're an open source author you've got probably a day job and so many other things in your life going on and so when you've got this project you probably haven't touched for a while and you get this sort of frightening issue that comes to you and says that hey this is a, a license violation uh, your gem is being distributed as MIT, but it clearly has a copy of a file that is encumbered by GPLv2. Uh, we need to resolve this. And so the action that was taken was to release that gem as GPLv2. And so <laughs> previous versions of the gem that I think included the files were yanked because they were released under MIT, which was a violation. So anybody who was dependent on those versions of the gem all of a sudden couldn't install gems from Ruby gems. Uh, and so because Rails itself has a dependency on active storage and active storage had a dependency, I think on parcel, which had a dependency on that, 
uh, anybody who was doing bundle install on a Rails app and was sourcing their packages from Ruby gems all of a sudden uh, were having issues with their bundle install. And on top of that, <laughs> having to talk to lawyers in their organizations probably about what does this mean to us? And I don't know that we've seen like the fallout of this quite yet, but I think it is important to keep in mind that when you're working on software, uh, you know, if you're Dr. Him in 2000 and, and distributing in your software, you're not even sure what the license should be, you know, consider where you're copying code from. Just consider very small details. Go to chooseolicense.org and get a sense of like what are the obligations associated with like the top 12 software, open source software licenses. And um, and then I guess we should sort of talk about some playbooks or come up with some playbooks to deal with these sorts of situations because mistakes will be made. We'll do our best. But when these things happen, what should open source authors do? What should project uh, builders or authors do? Consider maybe putting up a dependency proxy in front of Ruby gems. So for one, we don't steal all their bandwidth. And two, you've got a copy of some of these packages so that your production deployments aren't taken down. And also, I don't know, like I, I'm thankful for the Rails team this week because they've been working their butt off to try to find a solution for the greater community. And everyone on that team has their own lives and things going on and things that, that need to get done. And the fact that they kind of uh, made this a priority, I, I, I respect and appreciate. But we got to support them in other ways by preventing these sorts of scenarios from happening or catching them earlier. Yeah, developers generally are not lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> generally speaking uh, i'm sure there's exceptions and it's not always clear that yeah that little license file that most people don't check that is legally binding and uh, you know it's the same like end user license agreements people just click through but when you have a dependency of a dependency of a dependency of a dependency having an issue that ripples uh, so so quickly and especially as we've now gotten into a world where People are very quick to just pull in a dependency to fix their problem as opposed to, oh, could I write something fairly similar pretty quickly and move on? Like each dependency, you, you have to actually balance that risk of what if something is wrong with this? And, and worse, what if something's wrong with it that you don't see? Because in this case, no one saw that that file was a GPL violation. Um, I think the actual line where it said SPDX ID was actually removed, right? So like oh, it was. the author oh, knew that because wow. they had to deliberately remove that. And that happened like two years ago. Oh, and so, that's bad. Um, yeah, because if you look at the actual file, it's hosted on the free desktop. Uh, I think it's on GitLab. Uh, it has SPDX ID. And so for those who don't know, SPDX stands for the Software Package Data Exchange, I believe. It's like a, a standard for creating like canonical identifiers for software packages and licenses. So the SPDX catalog includes, I think like 400 plus IDs, like canonical IDs for different versions of soft, open source software licenses. So for example, in this case, it was GPLv2 was the identifier for that particular version of the software license. So when you see that SPDX identifier, it's a shortcut to the full license instead of pasting in the full license, which can be quite wordy. So don't delete those things. And if you're going to copy and, you know, if you're going to copy files from other source code, if there is a license in there, uh, you should probably leave it there and make sure that you understand why. In general, I don't like copy pasting. You know, don't copy paste code from Stack Overflow. Don't copy paste code from other <laughs> places. In this case, like that file is it had been built up over years, right? To have a canonical mm -hmm. source. And that one was encumbered by GPLv2, but I believe there were some other options that may not have been as comprehensive, but had a more uh, less restrictive software license. Like I think there was a Red Hat equivalent and in the Golang ecosystem, there was another one uh, that's uh, that includes similar data, but maybe not as comprehensive. So just be, be careful, you know, if you're copying, pasting things from the internet, think about why you're doing it. Make sure you understand what it is and just be aware that there's consequences. I, I would also say every time you pull in a dependency, check the source. And I mean, again, in this case, the author, there was, you know, 
removing the the problematic line was not a good idea but again realize that you're pulling in potentially new problems and if all you were looking for was oh well we needed one or two of the functions and we didn't have time to write them it's like well it might actually be worth it in the long run so it it helps to weigh those options and and realize just because you can pull something in as a dependency doesn't mean you should and and check the source like just because you're pulling it in make sure you're actually pulling in what you think you're pulling in i had an instance last week where an npm package that i published (laughs) was uh being incorrectly credited to another public repository on a well-known platform and that was not the source that was being distributed and so you know Use your best judgment when you're looking at things. And even though I don't think there was anything malicious in that code, just stumbling across that sort of mistake was kind of jarring because I could see how it would be like, oh, if there was something useful in this package. And I added it to my you know, package manifest file and just did the install step, but I didn't actually verify that these two things were equivalent. I could actually be introducing something malicious into my software supply chain which as an individual could be devastating for yourself in the future, just like it was probably devastating for the author of my magic this week. So yeah, just double check, use the source if you can. I wish there was a way to match the signature of the published item with like something that represents the actual artifact that's installed. Maybe we'll solve this one day. We wanted to start looking at uh, introducing another segment uh, real quick, um, Book Corner, just just so that way I, I stop plugging books in the middle of uh, <laughs> uh, long other subjects. So uh, two books uh, for this one, uh, and, and they're kind of related to each other. So one is called uh, Turing's Cathedral by Dyson, I want to say. We'll have, we'll have the link uh, in the show notes, as well as... Uh, Danny Hillis's The Pattern on the Stone. So Turing's Cathedral, I got turned on to it because I was looking for resources for uh, Johnny von Neumann, and uh, this one did not disappoint. And it was about sort of building the first computer, the first real general machine uh, in Stanford. And it it was fascinating. And you realize, oh, wow, this really slick looking laptop that I'm using is really just a shinier version of what they were using. And, and we're still kind of using the rough first draft. So that that's uh, <laughs> kind of funny and, and inspiring because you realize, oh, wow. So we could just as easily change it to something way, way cooler just from some, you, you just get the right people in the room. And the pattern on the stone, it's looking at how computing works from first principles. So this is aimed more at um, the general public as, uh, you know, you want to learn a bit what computer science is, but you don't want to take a computer science class. I would really recommend this book. And actually, even if you have already done the stuff, Danny Hillis, if you're not familiar with that name, he was the one behind the Connection Machines company, or the thinking machines, supercomputers. Um, so if you ever watched Jurassic Park and you notice that really blinky computer in the background, it was that. It's such a great, um, a great writer. Really can't stress enough how how he makes it sound so simple. And as, as someone who's built supercomputers, you, you really can't get a better teacher than that. It's a Unix system. I know this. <laughs> Um, I'll do a quick plug. Uh, I've recently installed an app called Libby, which helped me discover that my company has a lending library of audiobooks. So I use that to listen to a book called Mindset by Carol Dweck. And I had heard about this book for quite a while. I hadn't actually read it before. And I finally went through it and it was absolutely fantastic. And I can't recommend it enough. Uh, It talks about you know, some very specific examples of fixed mindset versus growth mindset, you know, in our own vocabulary and how we uh, nurture others. And I, I highly recommend it just to get a sense of maybe where you're at and where you want to be. Mm-hmm. And the, the book I'm reading right now is staffinge.com, which uh, it's uh, you can read all the articles for free. But I picked up the book just to get an idea of what it is to be a technical leader, like what type of technical leader would I want to be? Uh, and I think it's been quite exciting for me to get 
some different examples. Like it talks about four different archetypes of staff engineers. Let's see if I can remember now. Solver, the right hand, the architect, and I think it was the fixer. I always forget that one. But having some different ar archetypes to sort of uh, model my own behavior on has been quite helpful for me uh, in terms of figuring out what's, what's next. Mm -hmm. That's it for me. Cool. Thanks for uh, joining us for uh, this podcast. This might be uh, the last one we do uh, for a little bit because it's becoming summer finally in Calgary. And uh, we, we do like the sunshine, but we, we might surprise you with uh, one or two episodes. We'll see. <laughs> so until next time. I, happy hacking. Happy hacking.